Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. We're going to be talking about a really important topic. What is the future of transportation? Uh, you know, we're seeing EVs popping up everywhere. We're seeing public policy regarding electric vehicles popping up in multiple states. Um, and there's a lot of flux right now in the transportation industry. And our guest today is Bill Clem, and he is the chairman and CEO of a company called eBliss. Uh, you can check out his bio on our website. Uh, he's had a long and, and very successful career in the transportation industry, and I'm excited to have him on the show with us today. Bill, I would love to get started by talking about a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that discusses ExxonMobil's foray into lithium drilling. What do you think it means when we see an oil giant investing in the key resource for electric vehicle batteries? So first of all, Joel, thanks for having me. Um, thoroughly enjoy the show, so I appreciate the opportunity to be here to talk. Um, so for me, um, having spent the last 30 years watching the transportation industry evolve and then accelerate, I think what we're seeing right now is every every company in the system, so every company in the value chain of building and using and supporting transportation equipment is looking forward to say, what's my future? And obviously, changing from energy storage from gasoline or or those kinds of products into lithium means that the companies that are that have been in the production for centuries or for a century of making gasoline products have got to look strategically into other options. The other thing I think is interesting is is that the pundits around lithium who say there is enough of it for electric cars and there is enough of it, you know, every year, every month there seems to be additional lithium that's being found. So I think I think there's 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 quite a bit of headroom here for the marketplace to go find lithium to be able to use. I think whether lithium remains as a as the energy storage uh, material going forward, I think that's a question. But it's it's a clearly strategic bet for Exxon. What do you think the alternatives might be to lithium if you don't see that being? you know, necessarily the, the metal of choice um, that's a key ingredient for, for battery storage? So, so I think, one, I think you, one has to ask themselves the question, what will be the energy storage? You know, what will be energy storage in the future? What is that really going to look like? I think as fast as technology is evolving, Moore's Law, you know, is really kicking in across the entire, across everything that we're dealing with. And new inventions and new ways of doing business from, from carbon fiber to nanoparticles to all these other things are all being bet on simultaneously. And so I believe that there, we're going to go from one type of energy storage and usage, which is the carbon-based fuels, to a whole host of them over time. And I think that's really going to be the change. It isn't going to be one specific solution. It's going to be a range of technological solutions based on the use case that the user or that that system particularly wants. I, I can't help but wonder, even even if we have something besides lithium, you know, if we continue to use non-renewable sources for our fuel type, whether it's battery or whether it's, you know, the, the fuel for combustible um, combustion engines, if, if this um, transition to EVs is a temporary stopgap gap measure. I mean, are we talking about transitioning from cars that are fueled by a finite supply of fossil fuels to cars that require lithium or some other metal that also has a finite supply? Uh, you know, humankind has gotten about 150 years or so of transportation out of fossil fuel fired engines. How long do you think we can expect to be transported by batteries or other storage devices that require other resources of the earth that are non-renewable? So I, I think first, first of all, you're 100 percent right, and and I and I think that at the end of the day, the the, pop, the the energy storage, right? What is going to be that energy storage? I mean, think about the think about the United States of America having to convert all of the energy and all of the gas tanks in America to electric. Think about how much energy that is in those gas tanks. It, it's really virtually impossible to just flip a switch. 
There's so much invention that has to happen across the entire platform. It's fine to make one car. It's fine to make 100 cars. It's not fine to make 13 million cars and make that energy conversion because the entire system has to change. To your point, the inventions are coming, and, and lots of dollars are being spent to find those next generation of products and services that are going to get there. You've got, you've got people doing different kinds of biofuels. You've got hydrogen. You've got a lot of big bets being placed, and that's why I'm saying it's not going to be a one-to-one replacement for lithium-based transportation from gasoline. It's going to be a whole host of products and services that are going to replace the current gasoline. So I don't think it's just going to be lithium is going to carry us for the next 10 or 15 years. I think you're going to see a multitude of transportation-driven systems be created with different kinds of energy storage and usage. To your other point, you know, solar, solar captures energy, right, from the sun, mm-hmm. but then it's got to be stored and delivered. So I think that those things are going to be interesting as you kind of watch industry make these huge investments right now. Well, that's an interesting point, Bill. Let me kind of follow up on that because you said industry is making these investments. Um, are we going to have to make some public investments as well in order to make the switch as quickly as we need to? Terrific question. So in my opinion, similar to when you think of, you know, you think of 1960 and you think of John F. Kennedy declaring that the United States is going to go to the moon. Um, the technologies were not available in 1960 for anybody to think that we could get to the moon. But between, between public and private sector, there was a partnership that was created in which technologies were born that allowed us to get there. And I think that is absolutely what has to happen. I think there, needs, there is a misalignment between public policy and industrial needs and the consumer's wants. I think that misalignment needs to be needs to be fixed, right? I think government has a responsibility to align with industry to be able to take advantage of what consumer demand is. At the end of the day, demand drives value, and consumers want to change. That's very clear. I, I hearken it back to the early 1900s, in which the consumers wanted to change from horse-drawn carriages to uh, to horseless carriages, and mm-hmm. from that demand. Right, there was no roads. There was no there. There was no policies. From that demand, roads, infrastructures, and policies were born. The same thing needs to happen now, and there needs to be a fundamental alignment. Completely agree with your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's a very good example of the kind of um, public investment that we have done before. This wouldn't be unprecedented, and I think that's important Absolutely. to remember. Yep. Because we have, you know, there are other infrastructure needs that our our country is grappling with, water infrastructure, even the infrastructure around our our energy grid. And there's, you know, in some pockets of the country, there's some pushback on the cost of that and, uh, you know, whether or not we have to do that. We've had a whole generation kind of get a buy on major infrastructure investments, you know, after we stopped building a lot of, of our major infrastructure in the 60s. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we're undisciplined when it comes to making those kinds of public sacrifices and investments. And so, um, you know, we need a resurgence. And that's not a sexy thing for politicians to tell voters <laughs> at all. Oh, I, I completely agree. I actually think there's an there's an I think there's fundamental economic policy that can be created to align industry and their investments that are required to be able to to be able to achieve these quantum leaps in uh, in replacing fossil fuels. I think that I think if industry and government truly were aligned against that, I, I believe that with all the technology that's available today, these problems can be solved. Um, if you really think about it, when I worked at Ford Motor Company in the mid-80s to the 2000s, the, you know, when I was there, there was no way there was going to be another car company. A brand new car company couldn't be born because the technology wasn't broadly available enough to be able to teach people how to build 63,000 parts perfectly to put into a machine to make a car. Today, there are car companies being born all the time. There's a dozen car companies nobody's ever heard of in China that, are, that will be coming out to the United States and the Western world. 
So, again, that technology, all the boats have risen from a technology perspective. So we as a societal system can evolve technology much faster commercially than any time in the history of this planet. Well, that's exciting, you know, to to get that perspective, Bill. And I, you know, I I wonder how that's going to to look when we're also grappling with some investments in public transportation. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the pillars of our public transportation systems right now are going to need a $5 billion bailout in order to stay in operation. And public transportation advocates who really thought that people would give up their cars for public options have had their faith shaken, especially during and after the pandemic. What are your thoughts on the future of public transportation? So, so I think I think public transportation. I think you're already seeing big shifts in public transportation. If you look at as an example in New York City, a fundamental pillar of public transportation are e-bikes. That city bike happens to brand and, and market locally. So I think I think the theories around what is in the past for public transportation and the theories of what's going to be in the future, those those equations and those planning exercises are going to have much different. Um, mathematics and things in place. Example, so in um, in New York City, again, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but there are cargo bikes everywhere delivering goods and services in the city. These bikes are these bikes have carriers on them. It's a lot less. You, you wouldn't think Manhattan would be less crowded, and and it, and it doesn't feel that way. But probably it actually is, because you don't have a huge cube van parked on the side of the parked on the side of the road blocking traffic. Instead, you've got e-bikes whizzing by with, with cargo and delivery goods on them. The, the planners for the for cities are going to be taking these things, these realities into consideration as they're planning. You're already seeing it around the country with the debates on bike lanes and things going on. This is the natural evolution where policy is painful because it's change. And wherever there's change, people perceive loss. So it's always around change and loss and what's the penalty or what's the cost. But if you think about it, it's a natural evolution of all these things. And these realities are just going to happen as much as people might think they're unpopular for the moment. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, you know, some of our public transportation investments of the past will still make sense, you know, in the coming decades, given th- these kinds I, of transportation. So, some, some won't. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Some won't. I mean. You're, you're looking. You're looking at this urbanization trend as well. I mean, what do mm-hmm. young people want? I mean, my one of one of my children, when he was 16, could care less about getting his driver's license. In fact, gosh, we almost had to beg him to by the time he was 18. <laughs> no, so, but but when I was 15 and three quarters, I was begging to get my driver's mm-hmm. license and to get my car. I couldn't wait. Yeah. But I think that is a generational shift that is happening as well. And the other thing is, you know, young people are going to be, these are the voters of the future. These people are going to vote with their dollars as well as vote with their, with their thoughts and putting people into positions. So I think if industry and government aren't going to get together and do this, I can tell you my belief is, is the young people in this country and around the world will vote them out. Either I vote them out yeah. by not investing in their stock or vote them out of office. Excuse me for interrupting. No, no worries. My my apologies. We've, that's a great point. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more to talk about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about the future of transportation. And our guest today is Bill Clem. He's the chairman and CEO of a company called eBliss. And I invite you to take a look at their website. It's eBliss.global.com. And we're talking about... um, you know, the future of transportation, what it's going to look like in, in lieu of all of these, um, you know, tra- transportation technologies that uh, have, have served us well in the past. What is the future going to be looking like? And Bill, you recently on your LinkedIn page posted an article from The Atlantic that talks about space for parking in the cities of the future. Talk to us about how parking could impact people's transportation choices. So, so first, let me. Um, I think, Jill, you mentioned you in the San Francisco area. So, I think, mm-hmm. um, re- remember when Uber first launched in San Francisco? I do. You know, there was a, the, the the taxi industry in San Francisco at the time was about eighty million dollars in revenue, and Uber came to town and did three hundred million dollars in revenue in I think the first year. Those numbers yeah. are arbitrary, but I think they're relatively accurate. And and just think about that impact of consumers not parking in San Francisco, as we both know, that can be a bit of a challenge. So Absolutely. cities, cities, that was a joke. Cities are, um, are having <laughs> to be, excuse me, city planners are having to rethink how they think about parking because of all of these things. The cities were designed for cars. Cities were designed for buses. Cities were designed for these big things to go through them. They really weren't designed for humans to truly be efficient to get from one point to the other. They were designed around the need to have a building and have so many parking spaces per building. That, that math calculus is changing. There's a number of locations I've seen around the country and around the world that don't have parking, right? So mm-hmm. apartment buildings, condos are now being built in the United States. There's one in Arkansas that I posted on, I think, yesterday, that there's a building being built and that, that doesn't have parking. So I think that I think that's going to be the future. That's going to be the reality is that developers are going to spend a lot less money in commercial development because parking lots are expensive. Um, They're expensive to maintain, expensive to permit. And just think about how much more efficient the system could be if you didn't have to have the parking lots. That's Mm -hmm. one. Two, I think I live in Austin, Texas, and I can tell you lots of people commute using bikes and scooters and all kinds of forms of transportation. I think it, those those realities are now are, we're facing as a nation. So I believe that what you're going to see over the next 20, 30 years is I think you you will start to see parking lots be repurposed. Um, I think you will start to see different things happening within cities to move people from point A to point B, be it on the public side or on the private side. And as I gave you the city bike example a few minutes ago, I think the blending of what is public and private transportation is also going to merge. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I want to pivot and give you some time to talk about your company, eBliss. Um, you talk about e-mobility on the website. Help us, let's start by understanding the definition of e-mobility. And thank you. The, um, so as I, as I, as we put together eBliss, and I've got some amazing partners I'll talk about later, but as I put together eBliss, I thought about um, where are we as a country and what impact and influence do I want to have as a CEO and chairman of a business, right? What do I want to do? 
The first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to create a company that, that makes it easy. We build products and we bring products to market that make it easy for customers to create an experience, to experience an e-mobility product. Today, we, sell, we make and sell e-bikes. I think we make and sell some of the best ones in the world, and that was our, that's our starting point. And the interesting thing about e-bikes is that the majority of consumers in the United States haven't ridden bikes in years. I'm speaking about people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, they, they haven't ridden bikes in years. And so the first thing that has to happen to get people to try those or to, to use those things is to get them to try them and to find out that it's really not that, it's really not that overwhelming. But you would be shocked. I did a ride and drive in January with one of our customers. Had a hundred people test drive e-bikes. Seventy-five of the hundred had never or hadn't been on a bike in years. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, excuse me, seventy-five out of a hundred had never been on e-bike. Getting them to swing their leg over that seat and and sit down <laughs> on that saddle and ride that bike—that was the number one limiting factor to them trying e-bikes. And and what did they love about it? Once they did it, talk to us about that experience. How did they react? So one of uh, one of the customers made the comment that it felt like the hand of God was moving me along. Again, <laughs> it, it, for for me, I, I and by the way, that's not the first time I've heard that, and I've told, told the first person that said that to me, I'm going to use that in the future. But that's what they felt. They actually felt a sense of confidence that this bike wasn't going to fall over and they weren't going to fall over. Again, mm-hmm. wherever there's change in anything, there's a perceived version of loss, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's 119 million rides in a car in the United States of America every single day. 29 million of those are less than a mile. I want you to think about 29 million times a day a consumer gets into a five, six, seven thousand pound vehicle and drives it less than a mile. I think that, to me, that's one of the things that eBliss has as a responsibility is to one to bring that to the, to bring that to the market to to make to make sure that people do know that that is the fact, that is the reality, that those one mile rides. So as I think about it, if we can help move those one-mile rides at 29 million times a day, if we can impact that, we'll get the seven-mile rides. We'll get the 10-mile rides because consumers will get used to trying something new, and it will become the new norm. So as I think about eBliss, that's our charter. Our charter is to find ways to create opportunities for consumers to seamlessly experience a product or a service that's going to convert them from a carbon-based form of transportation to today an e-mobility form of transportation. You know, Bill, I can't help it. I feel like you're talking directly to me. I am one of those people who has not gotten on a bike in such a long time. I'm, you know, I live in a suburb. Um, you know, for, until fairly recently, I was not an empty nester. I was a minivan mom for. 20 plus years. I had three kids and they were spread out. So in age, so I had to get them to and from school. Um, we don't have school buses in my city. Um, and honestly, the drivers are not great and, and we're starting to get more bike lanes, but we didn't at that time. And so I had to get three kids, their sports equipment, their music equipment to and from school. And honestly, my minivan was as much a storage locker as it was a vehicle. And so it, it's really hard for me to think about especially during that phase of my life, how something besides, you know, the the vehicle that I was used to would have worked. But I know that there are e-mobility solutions that are trying to address that. And I'd love for you to talk about that. Sure. So, so, so first of all, Joe, you, 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 you take me back to my years at Ford Motor Company and launching in-vehicle entertainment and all the other stuff with minivans because you were my target customer for that yep. product. So let, let, let me tell you, in-vehicle entertainment was, was a conversation of the consumer. We wanted the kids to ask, are we there already? Not are we there yet? Um, so as, we, as I think about this, I, I want you just to take a step back to that journey that you were having, right? So there was a choice that you were making, and you said something super important, and that is the, the car, your vehicle became a storage device as much as it became a, uh, a piece of transportation because it was very convenient. So what I think is going to – what I know is happening is – People like me and people like these industrial designers are sitting down and looking at that particular usage case, and they're trying to find a way to be able to find a product that can do this in a more efficient manner. Again, sometimes it'll be a bike. 
Sometimes it'll be a car. Sometimes it'll be some other form of transportation to get kids back and forth to school. I mean, that is, that is, you know, I, it's hard for me to say exactly what they're going to be. I just know that consumers want them because we're having a conversation on a radio station now talking about it. So it's <laughs> obvious that this is what your listeners want to talk about. It's what you want to talk about. So it's that, that demand is there. And demand drives all of this. Policy mm-hmm. follows demand. Infrastructure, investment follows demand. So what I'm saying is I believe that consumers are going to drive the innovators to come up with these solutions. And what we want to be is we want to be an incubator for that. We want to bring that voice of the customer into the product development process. When we design e-bikes, we design them around the use case. We ask the customer, what are you going to do with the bike? Exactly what, do you, what is it that you want to do? You want to go pick up groceries? You want to go pick up your kids? And then we try and deliver bikes around those use cases. So many people that are buying e-bikes and bikes today are buying the bikes that are 1976-style bicycles that somebody put an electric motor on. And we believe that that's that segment, or that's that journey that we're going through right now in which mm-hmm. those consumers are starting to get used to these things. And they're, and they're starting to want more. They're starting to want specific things that address the storage locker question that you just posed. Mm-hmm. And, and it's exciting because I think, you know, in as much as during my phase of child rearing, the minivan was such a great solution. And it's because, you know, manufacturers were listening to parents who said, a station wagon isn't for me. I want something else. And, you know, and there you go. You've got the minivan. <laughs> I didn't want to do what my mom and my grandma grandma did. I didn't want a station wagon. So I, I think you're right. I think that there's a whole new generation of parents that want, you know, sustainable, responsible life choices. And they're just not going to stand for, for a lack of choices in the transportation you know, area of their life. There was something on your website. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So I was just going to follow up with one thing. And that is the fact that the other, the other thing that's happening is kids at a younger age are getting educated about this and they're Mm -hmm. asking their parents about it. So the other thing that's happening is this is becoming a social responsibility thing that children are learning. I talk to kids all the time. And I, and I think that is one of the things that is different in today. The amount of information that's available on policy and on these various things, they're getting deeper into our society and our children are getting anchored in, our, in their views at an earlier age. Apologize for stepping on you. Oh, not at all, Bill. I think you're absolutely right. And actually, my nonprofit that, that you know, is the, the backbone of this show and this podcast, the Go Green Initiative, we work with K-12 through schools throughout the country. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we're doing. We're helping to educate and empower students um, and their role models, the, the adults in their lives, to take these, these things into consideration. So I think you're absolutely right. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Bill Klim, Chairman and CEO of eBliss. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. At Voice America TRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. Our guest is Bill Clem, the chairman and CEO of eBliss. Uh, their website is eBliss.global.com. You can also check out some of their uh, products, their e-mobility products at theridebikes.com. Uh, they've got some of the slickest, coolest e-bikes and e-mobility solutions out there. And I'm really excited to have Bill on. There was something on your website, Bill, that kind of blew my mind. It was a phrase that jumped right out. It was maintenance free. All my life, Bill, I've been looking for a, a vehicle I can neglect. <laughs> Tell us how um, your products are maintenance-free. Um, cer- certainly. So uh, I'm going to go back a little ways. So uh, again, I worked at Ford Motor Company for a long time. Fantastic training, fantastic company, enjoyed the heck out of it. Um, one of the things I learned is listen to customers and understand what their true needs are, not just what they tell you. So when I launched our, my transmission in 2005 or six, when I first started a transmission company, um, we were launching it in Holland. So instead of doing the typical market research, we went and sat in over a thousand consumers' homes and we asked them the question, what do you want in a bike? What do you want in an e-bike? What are your priorities? And we went through a long diagnostic questions and there were three things that they wanted. They wanted a high-quality seat because they rode 18 kilometers to and from work. They wanted no noise drivetrain, and they didn't want to have and they didn't want to have the maintenance. Right? They didn't want the derailleur. They didn't want a chain. They they just didn't they just didn't want to hassle with it. So that became my mantra for this industry, and that is when we design things, we design them. For instance, our 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 drives don't have. Uh, chains, they have belts, and the belts are Kevlar and carbon fiber, and they go for hundreds and thousands and thousands of miles, way beyond the useful life of the bike. And we do the same thing as we purposely design elements of each one of our bikes. We design them to be able to not have consumers have to worry about maintenance. You still gotta, you still gotta inflate your tires. I can't do much about that. Um, but besides that, you know what? We would like to, we would like that consumer have an ownership experience where that is not what they talk about. The only thing they talk about is how nice the ride is. It's quiet because that's the other thing people don't like. People, a lot of people don't realize how insidious noise pollution really is mm-hmm. and noise of your, of your primary vehicle or your vehicle as, as a bicycle becomes unnerving to consumers. So as we think about that, that goes into our design ethos. So as we design bikes and equipment, that's how we think about it. We don't want customers to worry about those things. I don't want them to be neglected, so I love that comment. But, but, I, but I do want to make sure that consumers choose us because they don't have to worry about their, their piece of transportation equipment being in the shop. I love that. And, and it's so refreshing to hear you know, someone in your position so committed to to your customers um, and really putting them at the vortex of your decision-making. I love that. What makes eBliss bikes different from other e-bikes on the market? Talk to us a little bit about, you know, what goes into your products that is a differentiating factor. I'm sorry. I was getting some feedback. Speaking of noise pollution. Um, (laughs) So first and foremost, we, we, we think about the design and we look at what the cons- we believe the consumers who we're targeting want to do with the bike or the unit itself. And then we design the touch points and we design all of those things so the consumers appreciate it, right? Where are all the points that a consumer interfaces with this happens to be an e-bike? Where do they touch it, right? What is that feel going to be for that consumer? 
when they step on the drivetrain, right, the most important part of that bike is the experience of moving energy. Like, what does that feel in your legs? Those are things we take into consideration very carefully. So everything we do is sealed, right? The transmission, the electric motor, the belt, all those things are completely sealed. All those things are, are, are very quiet because we believe that consumers want to enjoy the ride. They don't want to listen to the chain dropping off. And for gosh sake, they don't want the chain to come off when they're driving and they have to then get themselves greasy. So that's what makes us different. We purposely design in to not have those, those experiences happen. And that, I think, is the most fundamental element that makes us different than most other e-bike companies in the world. I'm not going to say all of them because I do know some of them also are thinking that way. But this, we are maniacal about this. If it's, if it's going to affect the way the consumers are going to interface with the unit, you know, I don't want to have five buttons you have to push, right? We'd like to have <laughs> one or two buttons, right? Let's make it very easy and intuitive for the customer. So those are the things we put in. Second thing is we test. We test to destruction. So we test far above what the consumer is ever going to put that bike or that unit through. And everything has to pass rigorous testing and durability. So right now we've got a line of bikes going through destructive testing. And I mean, we take them to complete failure. We want to know what conditions that bike will fail under. And we want to ensure that that customer never experiences those things with as much as possible. That is amazing. What a what a great process. And I believe out of great process comes great products. So that is really enticing. I, I, I want to check out your products as soon as possible after hearing you talk about them. Um, I want you to talk to our listeners about safety and security when they're using an e-bike. I mean, for people who are used to getting around in a car, we have locks, we have other security you know, features, we're enclosed in something. What are some of the things to think about to ensure that you have a safe and secure experience with an electric bike? So I think, first of all, select the right unit. So look for, the, look for those purposeful design elements. Look for either a CE certification or a European standard certification on the energy storage device, the battery. Um, don't, you know, focusing on price is important, so value is always important. But buying the least expensive one in the marketplace, if you're going to use it for any amount of time, is not a good idea because you will not have a satisfying experience. So you do want to understand value and you do want to test them. So the biggest thing I can tell people is they should be test driving their bikes and test driving the range of options they're looking for. As far as safety and security on the bike itself, one, wear a helmet. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I recommend it. I, I, I try and live it. I ride my bikes every day, and I try and live, live by example. So wearing a helmet is the first thing you should absolutely do, and everybody on the bike should be wearing a helmet. Um, secondly, like having a fantastic lock. I mean, today we don't offer interoperability locks on our, on our bikes, but we will be. So we will be doing lockouts on the bike, on the bike motors as well as on the bikes themselves. But today what we're doing is we're launching these bikes as very simple. We've limited the technology deployments because we wanted to get our supply chain. And we also want to talk to a lot more consumers. The U.S. is growing from about a million to a million eight in e-bike sales over the next year or so. So they're growing very quickly. And this is a brand new consumer segment. So the part of what we're trying to do is to find out what is the next consumer that doesn't have one? What do they want on their bikes? Safety and security is one of those options, and so we're reviewing the range of options on tail lights and turn signals and blind spot detection. There's a bunch of things that are going to migrate from automotive into e-bikes in the next few years. That's that's really really exciting. I think it, coupled with some of the security features that you mentioned, you know the the various locking devices and ways that you might be securing these motors in the future, there's some public policy that needs to happen. And I'm wondering what you think about some of the types of public policy measures that we need to help improve the experience for people who choose cycling as their mode of transportation versus a car. I mean, is building bike lanes enough, Bill, or what else should we be thinking about? So, I, I, again, I, I'm going to come back to a lot of times we look at the world through a microscope and not a telescope. 
So when we look at the world, we look at individual events or individual situations and don't look at the full landscape. So I try and take a step back and look at the whole landscape. Infrastructure is going to have to be invested in clearly, but there's still large swaths of this country that are very safe and very open for bikes and e-bikes as it exists today. And those consumers aren't considered or, or haven't considered up until now that kind of mode of transportation. So this comes back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, and that's this intersection between industry and policy. And I think that's a big part of what this needs to be. So everything needs to be specific. So that's the microscope. But everything also needs to look through the world at a telescope to see the landscape and to see where these big pockets of, of dollars need to be spent and where this infrastructure an infrastructure on the bike as well, right? Battery technologies and, and motor technologies and interruptibility. All these things are different technologies that will be coming onto bicycles. That's the, that's the telescope look, not the microscope look. Got it. You know, Bill, for generations, Americans have had a special relationship with cars. You know, you talked about how excited you were to get your license when you were 15 and three-fourths. And I remember the same thing. Um, and I grew up in a place where... People, you know, tinkered with their cars, we had car shows, and people love their vehicles. Do you feel like there's a culture change coming that will help Americans have a similar affinity for e-mobility options? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, so it's interesting. So today, the automakers don't make a lot of money. Automotive dealers don't make a lot of money. And consumers are ambivalent about their cars for the most part. Growing up in Detroit, I grew up tinkering with cars and other other things, but that we made the cars personal. They were ours because we touched them, we worked on them, we played with them. Cars you can't do that with today. So the yeah. car becomes much more impersonal. It becomes that storage device that you talked about. That's mm-hmm. what it becomes. So when when you can't when the system isn't making money, that means the system isn't being able to invest appropriately in the next generation of things. So that's the reason why the reinvention of transportation is happening. And that's the reason why the most fundamental form of transportation, which is the bike, um, besides your feet, but which is the bike, um, that's the reason why you're seeing this massive growth in e-bikes and, and bikes around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we need a movie, Bill. We need a movie like American Graffiti, you know, where they were cruising and everybody was, you know, having fun in their cars. Grease, another great movie back in the day that kind of romanticized, um, you know, what you could do, especially as a, a young person in cars. Um, even Thelma and Louise had a great road trip. We need we need Hollywood to help us out. <laughs> oh, I, I, I can I can tell you it's, you know, it's it's coming. You know, cars have been romanticized since the 1900s, and the automobile industry romanticized them because that sold cars. So now, and and by the way, and it built highways, and it built an entire society around automotive. The the pain of that change we're now feeling, and this conversation is an indication of that pain that's out there, but it's happening, right? You aren't going to be able to stop these consumers that want that change, these children that don't want to be in that in that super expensive crazy car anymore they want their own freedom those changes are very powerful and i think are unstoppable well and you're really on the cutting edge of that with e-bliss we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we have more with bill clem chairman and ceo of e-bliss so don't go away folks there's more go green radio right after this The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, our guest today is Bill Clem, chairman and CEO of eBliss. They make e-mobility solutions. Right now, they've got some amazing e-bike products out there, really, really high-end stuff that's uh, comfortable, customer-centric, really, really cool stuff. You can check out uh, their products at theridebikes.com, and uh, you are going to be so impressed. Bill, I, I looked at your company website, eBliss.global, um, and in reading the bios of your core team at eBliss, it seems like you've really assembled a dream team. Talk to us about who's on board and what expertise and experience sure. they bring to the table. Sure. So, so first of all, I've got two partners in the business. So Dr. Billy Edwards, uh, PhD, Vanderbilt, ex-Foster Consulting Group, uh, Chief Strategy Officer, AMD and Motorola, brilliant guy, fantastic partner, has, has watched the evolution of the cell phone, was in the middle of the evolution of the cell phone, uh, was a part of it, so he saw that revolution that we're all living with today. The other gentleman is Tony Ellsworth. So Tony Ellsworth is a relatively legendary mountain bike designer. He makes pieces of art, and he does all of those touch points that I'm talking about. He creates that environment where that consumer can experience that e-mobility product. So I have one, I've got the technologist on board, and two, I've got the guy that makes things beautiful. Because the other thing I firmly believe is is that these, these devices don't have to look ugly. They can look nice, right? Because consumers are going to want a beautiful vehicle for them to go in. So, again, very blessed and honored to have these two guys as my partners. That's fantastic. You're bringing in the best, and that's that's the dream team that we need for this transition um, and, and transformation of what we think about in transportation. What are some of the most important lessons that you're bringing, Bill, from your work at Ford, Carfax, Fallbrook Technologies, and Visteon Climate Control to make eBliss successful? So one of, one of, one of the things I learned early on in Ford was Look for a seam in the market. Like, look for an opportunity where people aren't. Jump into the middle of that seam. Find sustainable competitive advantage. And then don't be afraid to go. Don't be afraid to push. So I think, I think nobody, has ever changed it. nobody has ever changed anything by being reasonable and amiable. <laughs> You've got to be out there and push it. So, but you have to know what you're going to push and which angle you're going to take. So I think what I've learned in my career and having done finance and manufacturing operations and all these crazy jobs is that I can recognize what that playing field looks like and I can identify those themes. And quite frankly, I think I'm relatively fearless of just taking advantage of them and going. So that's what I've learned is to get the confidence of what to go press and when to go press it. You know, Bill, we've got a lot of young adults who listen to Go Green Radio who want to do what you're doing and they want to have a green job and they worry about the kind of college degree or vocational training path that they should pursue in order to get a job in the sustainability sector. Based on your own career path, what advice do you have for them? So I, I speak to young people a lot and I've got a couple, you know, late 20, 20 year old children. So obviously coaching counsel with them, but this, this, is a, this is a time for continuous learning. The moment you think you know it all, you're gone, right? This is, about, this is about this continual quest to identify and understand and match your passion with what the opportunity is, with what you're willing to commit. Because it does take a level of commitment to drive these things and make all of this happen. So I think for the young people, what I tell them is find your passion, invest in yourself, I think the moment we stop learning, we start aging. So mm -hmm. I read, I try and read every single day and I try and understand what's going on in industry and everything that I'm interested in every single day. I want to know as much as possible 
so I can make those intelligent choices for my team, for my customers, and for my investors. I love that, Bill. And I think one of the core messages that we like to share with teens is, you know, regardless of the educational path that appeals to you that you want to pursue, you can bring sustainability, you can bring a mindset of environmental responsibility with you, no matter what job or or vocation you choose. And, you know, you didn't start off creating um, environmentally responsible transportation. That wasn't, you know, where it all started for you, Um, but that's where you took it. And everybody can do that regardless of the field they find themselves in. Absolutely. If it is to be, it's up to me. So it's it's up to you to to find these things. I started answering phone calls for irate customers for Ford Motor Company. That was my first job. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, and, 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 and that was a fantastic training zone. So I learned how to interface with people. I learned how to manage conflict. And oh, then my second job was to go meet those customers to face-to-face. That was another challenge. But it's what you take from those learning experiences. And then the other thing is, every job I've ever had, I've always tried to, to leave a remaining impact or a lasting impact on the position and the situation I found myself in. So you need to look to become that sustaining impact person and if you do that as a, as a young person, you will make a fantastic career for yourself and your family. Well said, Bill. You know, in the final moments that we have left in the show, I'd like to give you a chance to share some parting thoughts with our audience. So first of all, Jill, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you guys. And I'm sitting in the Atlanta airport and boarding a plane to go to a, to go to a sales meeting with one of our customers. So weekends, <laughs> weekends are weekends, right? So you got to work. But, but uh, I think the parting, the parting is, is that all of us have an opportunity to make a difference. And those of us who have the capability of making a difference have a responsibility of doing so. So I think all of us have the capability, so all of us have the responsibility to be able to make a difference in this world and in, the, in, in whatever our sphere of impact is. Because the moment you start to make that impact in your current sphere, you just expanded the sphere for the next person. You just expanded it for yourself. So that's a building block that we all can do. And so, again, I would challenge your listeners to think about that. And if it is to be, it's up to me. Well said, Bill. And I want to thank you so much for taking time to join us on Go Green Radio. This was a fantastic conversation, and I wish you safe travels. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us. Uh, What a great conversation we all got to be part of. Uh, We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.